All right, here we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 11, and we have now arrived uh, at the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, everything that we've been studying in the first 10 chapters has been gradually pointing us here, and now we're finally here. It does feel like we've been on a journey. Are you ready to talk about Mark chapter 11? Let's get on the donkey. Okay. Uh, literally, we're going to uh, actually watch Jesus get on a donkey. Um, so chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately... There's that favorite word. As you, who's the favorite word? Mark's favorite <laughs> word. <laughs> And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And so they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Maybe I ought to just make a note here that they did not steal <laughs> this 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 donkey. Yes, um, it was permission was granted, and I, I got to tell you, if the apostles just repeated what Jesus had told them to say, the Lord has need of it. Um, if these people had any recognition of who Jesus was, that was more than enough reason to let them take it. Yep, he's the Lord. Yep, you take that. Yep. That's yours. Absolutely. Have yeah. whatever you want. Exactly. You want my Here. socks yeah. too? Yeah, you need some money. Uh, whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's not. this is not larceny taking place here. Um, they let them go. Verse 7, And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Let's just stop right there. So these are the preparations that have been made for Jesus to make what is often referred to as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. If you're plotting all of this on kind of a timeline of the events of this week, this is Sunday. This is the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. Uh, this is the Sunday that is often referred to as Palm Sunday. And here in just a second, when we read verse uh, 8, we're going to see why it's referred to as Palm Sunday. Um, but what Jesus is doing here. Uh, this is actually a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse, verse 9, nine. Uh, yeah. where it says, Rejoice, Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. All right, normally you think of a king coming, he's going to come in like a steed. Yes, in the splendor and majesty of a large, noble stallion, uh, maybe a white horse. Um, you know, girded with gold and laced with purple. Yeah. Um, but he's coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, Zechariah says, the colt of a female donkey. Um, and so Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here uh, by coming in this way. And yes, coming on a donkey, uh, you, you can't get a whole lot more humble than that. Yeah. And this is a, 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 a like a, a, a little donkey, not even like a full-grown donkey. It's a child donkey. Yeah. This is the spirit of Jesus, though. Yes. And, and this is, it almost, I mean, it, it's kind of ironic, but it's kind of not, because at this point, we've been following him for so long, we understand, of course, he's the one that fulfills Zechariah 9.9. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I see Jesus giving these instructions here, you know, to the apostles to go and get this donkey and untie it, and then if there's questions, here's what you say. It, it just says to me, 
So here's Jesus coming to this place where he knows he's going to die by the end of this week. He's coming into the hands of evil people. And yet Jesus is fully in control of everything. Yeah, He's in control of the circumstances. He's instructing. He's prepared for questions. He's making a very deliberate declaration about who he is by coming uh, in this way. And, and this is his way of making the announcement that your king, Jerusalem, your king has come. And i got to tell you, when I was reading these verses uh, the other day, I immediately thought of all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, where it had said, prepare the way of the Lord, make well, his path straight. And it gave me chills to think about that. His paths have been made straight. The way has been prepared. He's here now. Yeah, um, It's and, time. And it's not going to be easy. But like I, when I'm reading this, Jesus is... I mean, he's cool as a cucumber doing all this. Oh stuff. yeah, and you know, and he's going through all this, and like you said, it's methodical, it's intentional, yeah. And and he's got a purpose and an intention, and you got to think the disciples must have seen that written all over his face and his body language and and everything because he's probably got a lot of emotion at this point. He's still a man, yeah, you know, but perfectly in control, like you said. And maybe the other thing to notice about this, by coming in, all right, he's going to make this entry on this donkey and all of the kind of the pomp and circumstance that goes along with this. Jesus is now no longer telling people, shh. Yeah. Up until this point, he's been doing that a lot. He's been telling folks, I don't want you going around saying these things. I don't want you telling people who I am or, or, or everything about what I've done. But this is now Jesus coming out of his shell saying, I've arrived. This is it. I want you to know that I am the king. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, and in, really, this isn't the first time that he's used fulfillment of prophecy to say who he was, but this is undeniable. I mean, this is yeah. clear, blatant, black and white. I, he's saying, I am the Christ. Yes. And that's a bold move. It is. And we're, about, <laughs> I think we're just about to see a series of bold moves. Yeah, especially, yeah. To do that so bold, you know, it'd be one thing to go do that. Uh, and do all these things like, you know, over in Nazareth. But he's coming right into Jerusalem to do these things. It doesn't get any bolder than that. He is at the hub of all, you know, spiritual and religious activity, the hub of Judaism. I'm, I'm the guy. I mean, he's living out fear not the one who can destroy the body. Yes. You know, that's yep. exactly what he's doing right now, and he has no fear. So as he comes on this cult, verse 8... Many people spread their cloaks on the road. And just the idea of spreading your garment before um, someone in that way was a sign that you, you acknowledge them as a dignitary. You were acknowledging submission to that person. Uh, that's the symbolism there. Others spread leafy branches. And this is where we get this idea of the, uh, the, the palm branches and why it's referred to as Palm Sunday uh, in lots of religious circles. Uh, leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Um, it is interesting, just if, you're, if you kind of tie in different things in from Scripture, the book of Revelation, chapter 7 and verse 9, this is just an interesting little note, Revelation 7, verse 9, this is one of the great visions that John sees of the triumph and the victory of, of the king and of his people. Revelation 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Huh. Uh, and so there's this tying together of, of those ideas uh, that the triumph of the king... Um, verse 9, 
And those who went before and those who followed, they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Yeah, We've got a song that we sing uh, in our worship services quite regularly based on th- those words there. Uh, and those are good words to say. Absolutely. No doubt about that. The word Hosanna uh, actually just means save us. It's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's uh, making a request. Uh, I know you said you wanted to say something about that. Yeah, it's cool because every, when we would sing Hosanna, I knew that it, it basically was announcing that God's a Savior. And, but thinking about it from the literal meaning of save us as a supplication, and then how they kind of blew my mind that I didn't know what hallelujah meant forever. Yeah. And I actually learned the actual literal meaning of it, you know, praise God, and it was a command, like an admonition to do that. Yeah. And kind of seeing the contrast of the two that, like, Hosanna is a supplication vertically, and hallelujah is an admonition horizontally it's it's what what these people are doing is they're acknowledging Jesus's superiority they are and preeminence yes. and really even some of the verbiage here is taken from uh, a psalm psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 where uh, it actually just says save us we pray o lord uh, and in verse 26 blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord um, and so um, yeah, they, they, they are acknowledging uh, their place, that he is a superior being in, in various ways. Now, whether these people fully understood that he was divinity, cloaked in flesh, um, probably most of the people saying this didn't get that. And I, I think I can say that pretty conclusively because of verse 10, when they said, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. I think what most of these people had in mind is still... This idea of a physical kingdom. Yeah, we're looking for this is David's descendant who's finally come, and he's going to set all things right. We're no longer going to be under the oppressive boot of the Romans anymore. We're going to restore Jerusalem back to its former prominence, and we will, you know, we'll know the glory of of this kingdom. But it sets your. I mean, for me, it causes the hairs to stand up. Like as I'm thinking about it, because they are. They're right in a way. They are. They and are. it's going to be a greater glory than an earthly kingdom could ever have. And I, I mean, I, I, I like to, I mean, it kind of gives me chills to think about probably a lot of these people were the kind of people that responded to the gospel once it went out. Yeah. It, it, for some of these people, there's going to be additional understanding that's going to come later. I know. Uh, after the fulfillment of, of all the things the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and the. Uh, the ascension, and then the preaching of the actual gospel on Pentecost. Um, yeah, I wonder how many people would have been in that crowd that day who maybe were a part of the 3,000. Like these people who were screaming, you know, save us, save us. And then, you know, if you were if you were one of those people, and then you were there in the crowd when Peter was explaining that now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, mm-hmm. you can imagine you would say, he, he, di- he really will save us. Yeah. And how that would click, and how that would cut you to the heart, and and on and on. Well, the king is here. Uh, the question is, what's the what's the king coming to do? Well, verse eleven goes ahead and tells us the first order of business on the king's agenda. He entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. Now, the first thing that clearly was on Jesus' mind is that I'm coming to inspect God's temple. Yeah, and once again. This is actually a fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecy. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. That's talking about John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek 
will suddenly come to his temple. Ah. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, verse 2. But here's the thing. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who's going to be able to stand when he appears? Malachi was foretelling, the king's coming to check out his temple. And when he does, it's not going to be a very pleasant afternoon. One time I was talking with a friend, uh, and he's, we were talking about that show Undercover Boss. Yeah. That's Jesus. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. He comes, he lives on earth. And he does some, you know, some menial work, and he's just humble and yep. has the appearance of, of just any other man and every man. And he's he's actually the boss checking everybody out, you know. And that's that's pretty wild to think about. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a little corny, but that's really what's going on. It is. He's there to inspect, and I just man, I just uh, so this is in the evening time. Uh, yeah. The text is going to say here in just a second. Yeah. Uh, but just like picturing this in my mind, I mean, this is. The Lord's house. Yeah. And he walks in, and the text goes on to say, and when he had looked around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The king is coming to make a statement in his temple, but not right now. Yeah. I'm just kind of getting a preview. This is, in, in many ways, when I read this verse, and this is what kind of gives me a, a, a chill down my spine, this is the calm before the storm. Yeah, I almost imagine him kind of looking around, mm-hmm. noticing some of these booths that are set up. Yep. Maybe like running his ta- his hand over the table and like seeing some dust like by the altar and being like, hmm, yeah. you know, things like that, and just noticing little things. And he's kind of like, okay, we'll see how, we'll see what all this is about yep. next time I come. Yep. Tomorrow, yeah. and, he, and he is. He's going to come right back on the very next day. Tomorrow, there there is going to be action taken. Tomorrow, on so this would be then Monday is when we're going to see uh, the actual things the. Malachi was talking about. Yeah. Um, so let's pick up with tomorrow, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Huh, Jesus was a man. Yeah, um, that's what hungry. I wrote down in my notes too. Jesus was a man. Just He's a human being. He's hungry. I, I appreciate the fact that the gospel writers just drop those things in like that uh, because we need those reminders. I mean, we're, we get impressed with all these things of, man, he's fulfilling all these prophecies, and I, I don't think I could even keep track of all these prophecies, but he knows all this stuff, and he's doing these miracles, and his teaching is amazing, and man, he's the Son of God. And it's easy for us to see that because we're reading. We get the yeah. big picture. We can see it all. But Mark and Matthew and Luke and John do this as well. He got hungry. Yeah. Or he got tired. Yeah. Or he was sad. Um and and that that's that ends up making these things even more impressive. Yeah, uh, he was a human, and it takes away all of our excuses. Yeah, that's true. Um, so he was hungry. So verse thirteen, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, circle that, note that in your mind. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, though, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And so he then says to this tree, this is always funny to, he talks to a tree. He says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this uh, little occurrence in 12, 13, and 14 uh, is somewhat puzzling for, for folks. One commentator, I actually wrote these down, one commentator referred to this, I kid you not, as a fit of ill temper on Jesus' part. Uh, Another commentator said that this was Jesus actually being petulant, like a child. Hangry Jesus? <laughs> yeah. Come on, uh, guys. Yeah, he's, 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 he needs a Snickers, yeah. uh, clearly. You're not you when you're hungry. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
And so, but we do read this, and we are inclined to ask, why would Jesus get upset at a tree, number one? Uh, he actually talks to the tree and refers to the tree as you. Well, that's my question. Uh, yeah. Um, and furthermore, when it's noted that the figs, to our mind, well, they haven't even had a chance to grow yet. Here's the kicker. Here's how fig trees work. On a fig tree, the first thing that shows are the figs. Okay. Then the leaves come afterward. Oh. That's an important note. Figs come first, then the leaves come second. Which means that this particular tree, even though it wasn't yet fully the season for figs, this tree had blossomed early. Ah. And that does happen from time to time. That happens with a tree, that happens sometimes with a garden where, you know, one particular plant, maybe the rest of them don't, but that one does. It blooms a little bit early. Uh, fruit comes on it a little bit early. But why are there no figs then? Uh, well, then obviously, um, the, the, the point is, this tree is fruitless. Uh. This tree, since it's already got the leaves and the figs are not on it, then what that means is that means this tree did not actually bear fruit. It's a defective tree. It's a defective tree uh. in that sense. Um, and that's important for us to note because this idea of being fruitless, when it has the appearance, you know, you look at it at first, oh, it's got leaves on it. So then, well, yeah, it must have figs on it. And you go and look and, well, there's no actual fruit on it. So that idea of being fruitless while having a show of fruit, that's a key idea for us to keep in mind for what's going to end up happening in the next several verses. It's like the phylacteries of the Pharisees. Oh, yeah. The same kind of deal. They, yeah. They look really, really religious, and it could pass off to the untrained eye, but Jesus doesn't support what they're about. That's exactly right, and that is exactly the case here with this tree. It ought to have fruit on it, but it doesn't. And that's the reason that the Lord curses it, okay. uh, is because it's a fruitless, it's a defective tree. So if this tree had just sat there till the next year, uh, the implication is, is it's just going to do the same thing. It's going to continue to occupy space in the ground without actually ever bearing fruit and serving the function that it's designed uh, to serve. This is what we're going to need to see from this, and this is why Jesus does this object lesson. Yeah. Israel, the Jews, they ought to have bore fruit. And in fact, when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, how are the people acting? Well, the people were acting and putting on a show of, yeah, we're, we're fruitful people. Look at us. We're, we're praising the coming uh, Messiah. This is the one that we've been uh, looking for. We're cheering him on as he enters the city. But very, very soon, in fact, before this week is over, their fruitlessness is going to be revealed and it's going to be uh, exposed. Um, Jesus' pronouncement there in verse 14 when he says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Uh, it actually in some ways is kind of just a replaying of something that the prophets had regularly denounced about Israel time and time again throughout the Old Testament. I actually have one of those pulled up here in Jeremiah chapter 8 and in verse 13. One of the things that, that Jeremiah had said, uh, speaking for the Lord, he says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, and notice this, nor figs on the fig tree. Even their leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Time and time again, God's people, His first covenant people, um, would put on a show of being fruitful, but whenever God came looking for fruit, there wasn't actually any fruit on their spiritual tree. And so Jesus is just kind of replaying that scene. And as a result, time and time again in the Old Testament, like when Jeremiah had to make that pronouncement in Jeremiah 8, it ended up leading to God's judgment. Okay. And what Jesus says here is emblematic 
of God's coming judgment on Jerusalem. Well, that kind of takes this passage that was kind of a head-scratcher for me and makes it into what could potentially be an awesome sermon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it heightens the intensity of the next several things that follow now because okay. uh, there is great uh, Old Testament significance being echoed in the events that play out beginning now in verse 15. So verse okay. 15, they then come back into Jerusalem. And he entered the temple. So I was inspecting it the night before, and I'm back again today while all of the you know normal activity was going on. and whatnot. Yep. And the text says, he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow, verse 16, would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, uh, this scene is repeated in, in, in at least one of the other gospel accounts, I think maybe in Matthew's account, if not, if, if not maybe in Luke's as well. Um, but that note in verse 16, uh, Mark is the only one that gives that note in verse 16, and that is that Jesus, uh, he shuts the temple down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's not allowing anybody else to come through. He's blocking the gate. We're, we're stopping this. We are closed for business today because of what, uh, what I have observed. And what is he observing here? What he's observing is just the complete corruption of the kind of worship that ought to have been taking place at the temple. It's become commercial. Yes. Um, it's good for us maybe right here to stop and let's get kind of a picture in our mind of the way the temple worked. The, the temple was actually a series of courtyards that led up to the actual, like you know, what we would consider kind of the inner main part where like the altar and stuff took place. There was, first of all, there was the outer court. That would have been the first court that you would have come to uh, when you came to the temple, and that was sometimes referred to as the court of the Gentiles. Yeah. Gentiles were allowed to come to the temple, but only that close. So they're kind of given the, this outer court, and you'd come and you could worship there. The next level after that, you'd have come to a partition, and the next court was the court of the women. This is where Jewish women would come, and they could offer their worship. Then the next level, you take another step up, and this is the court of the men. And this is where Jewish men would come and offer their worship, and then finally you would come to the actual temple court where the altar is. Um, these events, I, I believe, are taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Okay. And that then makes the statements of, of, of what Jesus does in verse 15, it gives them a little bit of extra poignancy that Jesus you know, drives out people who are uh, selling and those who are buying in the temple and the money changers. The way this would work is if somebody would come to offer worship, say you've come from a far off land. Let's say you come from Ethiopia to worship. We know those the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. He's yeah. from Jerusalem. If you come all the way from Ethiopia to worship in Jerusalem, uh, chances are you probably are not going to be able to bring your animal that you're going to sacrifice from that far off of a distance away. Yeah. So to make things, quote-unquote, convenient for uh, worshipers is we'll just offer. We'll just set up kind of a little pen for animals. We'll have some livestock available where people can just buy their animal and you can just have it sacrificed right there on the spot. On top of that, the temple actually used their own currency uh, that was different from the money that was used you know, out and about when you bought other stuff. Well, what you'd have to have is you'd have to be able to exchange your money. So if you've brought you know, Roman money, you need to be able to exchange that for temple money so that you could then buy. So, well, hey, let's make that convenient as well. There's let's the money up, changers. Let's set up the money changers tables. Yeah. And you do have what has been set up here is just uh, this commercial. It's almost like a, a, I picture a yard sale yeah. almost. Kind of a gift shop, bazaar kind of set up. Yes. Yeah. And keep in mind, we're talking about 
animals, live yeah. animals. So what does that create? That creates the noise of animals. Yep. It creates the stink of animals. Yeah. You know, cattle. And you uh, got it. I mean, you're gonna have to have jobs associated with that. People handling. Them, so there's all kinds them. of people talking and 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 ruckus going on. There's just salesmen. It's all yes, and it's almost like a circus at the place. Think of the place that you and I come to worship. Imagine if we showed up on Sunday morning and we're here getting ready, trying to sing and to pray and worship God. Yeah. And there's you know. A barn set up in the foyer. Yeah. Well, we're just we're just selling our sheep out here. People come here all the time. I mean, well, just make it more practical. My friend, someone here in Somerset. I'm not going to say them. Or I'm going to say their name. I'm going to say the church. But I'm I'm talking with her, and she sends me a picture because I said, "What are you doing? What are you into?" Sends me a picture, and I I saw it, and you know, I I just responded, and I said. Looks like you're out at the bowling alley, you know, having a, having a nice Sunday evening at the bowling alley. And Laser she, lights. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she responded and said, this is my youth group. Oh. And there was coffee. It was like a Starbucks. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I was just kind of taken aback for a minute. And I was like, I mean... Just, just what was going on there was just, it was a bunch of teenagers hanging out at like a coffee bar. Yeah. Having, quote unquote, youth group. And... Coffee helps you. I mean, it's convenient. It helps you focus, you know. But to be serving that as like a church function is like this has now become like it's become a commercialized well, thing. Imagine if you were a person that was sincerely seeking God, and you arrive at a place like that. Just like yeah. if you, just like if you were a Gentile and you arrived here to Jerusalem to worship. I guess and you're this sincere. Is what religion is. You would. You, yeah. you could. Number one, you could be confused. But the second thing is, you have all of these external things that just end up hindering worship. Again, how can you worship the Lord with all those sounds and smells and uh, things going on and focus on God uh, when all of this just ruckus is taking place? And, and those things all come together to explain why Jesus reacts the way that He does. This is, this is it's sometimes referred to as righteous indignation, but I don't hesitate to just say Jesus was angry and he was right to be angry. Yeah, uh, this absolutely. Is, this is a corruption of God's worship, and it's hindering the very people who are the most, maybe the most sincere in seeking God the most. Like I said, if this stuff's happening in the outer court where the Gentiles were, those are people that probably were as genuine as anybody. Yeah. Um, you know, they weren't born into it. Yeah. You know, they, they were not commanded to go here, but we want to go here. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is completely turned off by that. And this obviously, the fact that this was happening on this day probably is a good indicator that this had been happening all the time. He says, you've made it a den of robbers. It's a den of robbers. And actually, well, we haven't even read what he, yeah. what he says, so let's read that. Yeah. Verse 17. So he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, that's actually taken from Isaiah 56 and verse 7, that idea of all the nations. And this is why I think Jesus is talking about the Gentiles here because this is supposed to be a place not just for, for Jews, you know, descendants of Abraham. This is designed to be a place for all people who are diligently seeking God. But you, you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it. And they then began to seek a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Um, that second part of the quotation there, that you've made it a den of robbers, uh, that's actually taken from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, 
uh, in verse 11. And if you've ever read Jeremiah 7, it is one of the most scathing prophecies, one of those scathing denunciations of the people of God uh, under the Old Testament system of doing things. Uh, and in Jeremiah chapter 7, the prophet actually is telling the people, don't tell yourselves that you're okay with God because you have the temple. Yeah. Just because you have the temple, that doesn't mean anything. Absolutely. Which is why I think that this is so upsetting uh, to, to Christ and why that the pe- it says that the chief priests are afraid uh, because they know that they're acting outside the authority of God yeah. and that they're taking liberties. Yes. And they know that they have no defense against this admonition. That's why they they purpose in their hearts to kill him. That's why they've, they've had been forced into this corner because Christ's saying, all right, I'm taking it to you now. I, I'm going to put you on your heels, and he knows how they're going to react to it. Yeah, yeah. This is... Uh, the, the other thing here, if these, especially these chief priests and scribes, men who would have been familiar with the old law, when they hear Jesus quoting this stuff about dinner robbers, they would have certainly been st- start thinking about Jeremiah 7, where Jesus says, or, or where the prophet had said, you know, my house has become a dinner robbers. You know, how could you allow this to happen? That text goes on to say, down in verse 14, God says, therefore I will do to that house that is called by my name, the temple, and in which you trust, You've placed your trust in the temple. I will do to that place that I had given to you and to your fathers exactly as I had done to Shiloh. In other words, destroy it. I'm going to destroy it. This place is going to be destroyed. And so when Jesus is now quoting from that passage, these people are starting to get, they're connecting some dots here. And this is probably why the text says that they feared him and they are starting to plot on how they can destroy Jesus. This guy's threatening to destroy the temple. And again, we have to look at the bravery of Jesus. These are the same guys who have been out to get him this whole time. And he, to them, this is their home court. Now, this is really, I mean, this obviously belongs to Christ, really and truly. Oh, yeah. It belongs to God. Yeah. It's mine, Jesus says. Yeah. Yeah. Mine. My but, house. But he comes in there. He claims that. He basically goes into, quote, unquote, their house and yeah. says, that's like if, I mean, if we, hopefully we'd be able to recognize it, but that's like if, if, if Jesus came in here and started correcting us on stuff we were doing in our worship and in our assembly and, and in our own hearts, and we're like, who are you? And he's like, this is my church building. Yeah. You know, this is my congregation. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, that, that would pierce us, I think. It would. It um, would. Uh, you know, this is sometimes referred to as Jesus cleansing the temple. Yeah. But maybe a better phrase to use is Jesus is judging the temple. Yeah. And here's where we can connect this back to the to the to the fig tree. This temple, if you had walked by and, and paid attention and saw the activity going on there, it appears on the surface to be bearing lots of fruit. Yeah. Hey, look at those religious people in there doing religious things. But the heart of the matter is, is it was not actually bearing fruit for the Lord. Yeah. And that's the correlation here. There is not righteousness and goodness taking place here. Instead, this is a place that's full of corruption. It's full of greed. And so uh, th- 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 this is why I, I prefer using the idea of, of judging. When Jesus came to the fig tree, he didn't cleanse the fig tree. He judged and destroyed the fig tree. And so it is here at the temple. He is judging the temple, and he is going to uh, destroy this place right. ultimately. One other just little note that I had wrote down um, and this kind of is just neat to think about. Where was the place, if you were a Jew, where was the place that you went 
in order to seek forgiveness from God. That'd be the temple. You went to the temple. By Jesus saying he's going to destroy this place, um, the suggestion here um, is I'm going to destroy this place and I'm going to replace it with something entirely new. Yeah. And indeed that is the way it is. We don't have to go to a physical location to seek forgiveness. We can just go directly to, to Christ himself. That's Jesus right. is going to replace that. He's our mediator. He is. Um, the new high priest. Speaking of the tree, you mentioned the tree a second ago, brought that back up. Um, the tree makes another appearance. Verse 22 now. As they passed by in the morning, they saw that fig tree from the day before. They saw that fig tree withered away to its roots. Hmm. So clearly, judgment had fallen yeah. upon that tree. It wasn't just idle words that Jesus yeah. spoke. Uh, judgment happened to it. I have here on my notes, if Jesus says that it's going to happen, even if it seems insignificant, it's going to happen. happen. Yeah. Yep. And Peter remembered, and he said to him, you know, and you know, how surprising is it that Peter is the one who has to speak up here? I can't believe it. He's so quiet all the time. Yeah. Um, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Again, you know, pat Peter on the top of the head. Good job, Peter. You know, <laughs> your eyes work. That's how good. observant of you. <laughs> and Jesus answered them, "Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he, believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours." Now, this seems like maybe just kind of a little aside about, you know, about faith and prayer and how all of that works together, but uh, I think there's maybe a little bit more at work here. Um, you know, when Jesus says, whoever says to this mountain, I just think the mountain he's talking about is the mountain that they're on, yeah. which is Jerusalem. Um, and I think he may even be referencing in some ways uh, the kind of faith that, yep, this mountain, Jerusalem, it is going to be removed. Yeah. My kingdom is not going to be this literal mountain of Jerusalem. And I want you to have the kind of faith that says that my kingdom, Christ's kingdom, it is going to come. And it's going to usurp this mountain. Uh, and in fact, it's going to overthrow this mountain. And indeed, when you read the book of Acts, you find that that's exactly what happens. Indeed, uh, Christ's kingdom does not remain in Jerusalem. It expands throughout the whole uh, world, uh, and it ends up replacing the entire you know, Judaic covenant and system uh, of religion, which means then that the prayer that Jesus is advocating here uh, is, once again, it's not a prayer that they're going to need to pray in the physical temple, in the literal city of Jerusalem anymore. God no longer dwells in that temple like he once did. Um, the primary ingredient is no longer the, the location of your prayers, but it is the faith that accompanies those prayers. Um, Which, if that's the case, then that kind of goes along with the general theme throughout the, the whole chapter of upheaval yes. and revolution that's coming and a change. Yeah. Not that Jesus is anti uh, old law, like some people will say, but he fulfilled it all. But yeah, but that he fulfills that and then flips it on its head. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what I. You know, you can picture the flipping of the table. Just picture him flipping the entire temple. Picture him flipping 
the whole city of Jerusalem when you picture that. The whole world. Flip the whole world while you're at it. <laughs> um, but yeah, this this little passage here, these verses, do get abused sometimes. Uh, this is not intended to be some kind of a blank check for prayer. Um <laughs> I believe I'm going to be CEO of my own business. I really believe I already have that. I just pray for that and it happens. That's that's totally just not what that's about. This is about believing that God is going to enable people to do the things that are His will. You know, not things that are outside of the will of God, but the things that God has uh, commanded and expects. You pray that that's going to happen, and God's God's going to see to it that, that that does happen. That last statement there in verse 25 Jesus also puts this on here as well as a condition for prayer. When you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And then um, lots of translations include verse 26, even though there's kind of some textual uncertainty about it. But it's the condition that you know if you don't do that, then your Father in heaven is not going to uh, forgive you. Uh, that's just an important just general note about how our prayers to God can be hindered when we harbor, you know, ill will and unforgiveness toward others. Um, the, the, regardless of whether or not you include verse 26 or not, verse 25 teaches the positive, which implies yeah, the negative. The negative is implied. Yeah. So um, it, it's just a natural following thought. But th- th- that's interesting to me to think about because I kind of thought about it in steps. Well, if, if unforgiveness is a sin, and that's a pretty grievous sin because that's that's kind of your severing your horizontal connection with other people, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then that sin separates us from God, and prayer is when we approach the throne of God. Well, then it makes sense that we don't get an audience with the king if, if we're not willing to hear other people as well around yeah. us. Yeah. Why would, he, why would he, someone in higher authority, want to hear from us while we're not willing to hear from anybody else around us? Yeah. That's not the person that you want to have in your audience, in your chambers. Yeah. You know? And, I don't, and it, it says something strongly here just about worship in general. Prayer, of course, is, is a form of, of worship. God's not, he's not interested in our worship. We can sit here and, and pray and sing and do all this stuff. And if we're harboring that kind of you know, ill will toward another human being, especially a brother or a sister in Christ, I don't, I'm not interested in that. Get out, get out of my throne room. Get yeah, out, get out I don't of my know presence. You. Yeah, I don't know you. Yeah. Um, and that's a scary thought to think about. Um, yeah, that God would just look at my worship and be like, gross. doesn't matter how good you try to sing or pray eloquently, but that's not useful to Him unless we're willing to work together because the Lord knows we can't do this alone, and I know that. Yeah. Um, verse 27. Uh, this then leads to this last little um, uh, section, altercation. Um, this is a jam-packed you know, a couple of days here at the beginning of this week for Jesus. But verse 27 says, They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Can I just note here that in reality... That's a good question to ask. Yes. That I have that written down as well. That's a question that uh, more people in religion need to ask today. What, by what authority are we doing the things that we do? Yes. Um, so that's a fine question for them to ask. But, I, but it is tinged with kind of some sinister motives coming from these guys. Yet another accusation. Yes. Um, 
you know, who, who gave you the right to do this? Who, who, you, you coming in here flipping our tables and saying the things that you did? You know, who, who gives you the right to do all this I want to say, too, real quick, we as members of the Lord's Church, we, we need to say... We need to ask that. We need to ask that, yes, but also when we ask that of other people who are maybe in other religious systems, we need to ask them by what authority, but we don't need to ask them like the Pharisees did, looking to accuse them. Right, Just right. looking to understand where do, where do you get your authority for this actually Yeah, and come to a mutual understanding. Because that's a lot of the disconnect and the failure that I've seen in evangelism is we ask for authority and we say, well, where's that in the Bible? And yeah. that's how we say it. Well, yeah. well, where's that in the Bible? You know, and and ultimately it is going to come to that. Yeah, but it's but, the way that we say it yeah, that matters, and the, right. the heart that we're coming from. People can pick up on that. Yeah, yeah. These these uh, these scribes and elders and chief priests that come to Jesus. That it's it's not in a good. I mean, the text you can't read tone into it, but judging by everything we've read about these yeah. men up to this point, we can probably assume their tone was was negative. And I don't want to harp on this for too long, but that's why we get called Pharisees sometimes is because sometimes I think members of the church have acted like I have. Yeah. Acted like these Pharisees where I'm asking for authority, but I'm not trying to I'm not trying to, you know, help them come to a conclusion. I'm trying to first beat them and prove them wrong. And yeah. that's that's a Pharisaic attitude. We just gotta admit that. That's a Pharisaic attitude there. Well the the thing is this ugliness comes from these guys and it is being directed toward the absolute master yeah. of how to deal with these situations. And this is probably there is just Jesus is a boss here in these these last few verses. He's actually the boss, the undercover boss. He is, but he is just he's such a boss in how he yeah. deals with this. It is there is I, I wish that I could could handle situations the way he does here. So let's read it. Verse twenty nine, Jesus here's how he responds. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying... Just hmm. want to say, any time that someone says this, i got to ask you all a question. And then the group kind of looks at each other and immediately starts whispering off in a corner. you kind of know they're, they're probably not going to have a good answer. Yeah, they're already kind of conceding defeat. Yeah. Uh, so they start to say to one another, If we say from heaven... He's going to say, why did you not believe him, John the Baptist? But shall we say from man? Hmm. Am I reading that wrong? No, you said But right. shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, verse 33, we do not know, which is a lie. They know. They do know. They just don't want to admit it. So Jesus then says to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Um, the issue here is that these guys... They're wanting to play a game. They're wanting to play a game, and they're not interested in truth. Mm -hmm. They're not interested in giving a truthful answer. This is all just pragmatism. You know, what? what well, well, come on, guys. Uh, what, what can we say here that would work out best in our favor? Uh, how can we still hold our ground here and we can come away looking good. They're concerned about how the people think about them. And That's why they huddle in the corner Oh, yeah. There. yeah. I don't know if it's a corner, but why they kind of huddle together. Yeah, it's like, just, okay, it's guys, game, game plan. plan together. Uh, there's no actual interest in truth. And what I, one of the biggest takeaways that I take from this is that if you're not interested in truth, Jesus doesn't have time for that. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe we ought to look, take some cues from that. If I'm talking to somebody and it is evident that they're not interested in truth, we're wasting our time. Yeah. And we need to walk the other way. Because Jesus just says, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority uh, I do these things. Um, the, the amazing thing, let's just, just look at Jesus' question again in verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? The amazing thing about the question that Jesus asked them is, it, is that if they were to answer that question honestly, then they would know the answer to their own question. Yeah. They wanted to know from whose authority you know, do you do these things. If you guys will acknowledge that John's teaching was from heaven, and that is the correct answer to the question, then you're going to know that what John taught and said about me was true, which means that you will then know that I am sent from heaven, yeah. and the things that I speak are from the authority of God who vests them with that authority. And this is the beauty of God's plan in sending John the Baptist first. Yeah. Because that's a lot easier to swallow that, oh, here's just a prophet. And then he transitions them into God on earth. Yeah. That I mean, and now he's what what he's done is he's the Lord. He's played the long game perfectly. Yeah. And this is the culmination of that moment. Yep. Puts them to shame. They could have they could have answered their own question if they had been honest, uh, but they weren't. And Again, the fact of Jesus saying, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things, and I just imagine Jesus then walks away and yeah. goes to the next thing because he is a man on a mission. Yeah, and he didn't answer them straight. And he didn't answer them straight because he already made it clear who he was back in verse 1 through 10. Yeah. When he rode in town on that donkey, yep. he, he was telling everybody, I'm the Christ. And the, if they asked him, and if he answered them straight, they know how he would answer the question. Yeah. If they said, by what authority? He would say, by my father. He's been saying that this entire time. That's right. So they already know the answer. And he knows that they already know the answer. That's why he doesn't answer them straight. The answer is, is right there in front of them. And uh, the truth is, I said a second ago, maybe Jesus uh, you know, walked away right after this. And actually, I should take that back. Chapter 12, verse 1, um, he actually says a little bit more. Uh, and this yeah. is maybe not the best chapter division uh, because these first uh, 10 verses or so, uh, Jesus then tells them a parable. It's the parable of the tenants. And we will go ahead and, and, and stop it right here, but we're going to just keep the scene going in our minds when we discuss chapter 12 next week. Uh, lots of in, intense stuff building up here uh, over the course of these, these next couple of chapters. Any other parting thoughts on chapter 11 before we close? Love everybody. Tune in to chapter 12. All right. Good talking about chapter 11, and we look forward to talking about Mark again next week.